Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Whoa, I'm impressed. Yes, indeed. Hey, it's good to see you guys again. I'm looking forward to talking tonight. Um, about um, about all sorts of things. So as uh, as we kind of get ourselves warmed up a little bit and as we um, create a little bit more space for people to come in, here's the question I'd like for you to think about. I'm going to give you the question. I want you to think about it um, for as long as you need by yourself. But then after a minute or two, just turn to a couple people around you and then share your answers. Here's the question. If you, this is totally like a fake hypothetical situation. So don't ask why you'd ever be in this situation because it won't make any sense. But imagine you're in a situation where you want somebody to understand Understand, like the message of the Bible, but you can only give them three individual chapters. That's it. You got to pick three chapters of the Bible that you can have a person read that you hope is somehow going to tell them what they need to know. So that's the situation. You want somebody to understand God and salvation and, and whatever you think is most important, but you can only give them three chapters to do so. Take a minute and think about which three you'd choose and why. And when you're ready, start looking around at each other and then dialogue about this a little bit. So take a few minutes to talk about this, then I'll pull you back together and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk together. Back on? Yeah, okay. I asked Mark, our pastor, and he said, uh, Song of Solomon 1, Song of Solomon 2, and Song of Solomon 3. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, let me hear from some of you guys. What do you think? I mean, obviously, it's an impossible question, so there's no pressure to get it right. What do you think? Yes. Good. Yeah. Romans 8 and Isaiah 53. Yeah. If we were playing a one-chapter game, it would be Romans 8 for me. Yeah, so I'd probably throw that in there as well. Good. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, Genesis 1 and John 2 and 3. Interesting. Tell me why. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, here it's in John. Yeah, he's say okay. Yeah, good. What else? Oh, Ephesians two is hard to beat. It really does have have the whole piece of it in there. What are some others that, uh, as you thought about this, maybe you didn't get like three that you were satisfied with, but there was one that definitely came to mind for you. Any others? What's that? I heard a couple. One was right over here. Yes? Steve, did you say something? I started to, but I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thought better of it. Okay. Yeah, what did you say? Ecclesiastes, because that's mm. the man on the street. Yeah. The last of the chapter says, fear God and obey his He does. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Everybody in Ecclesiastes. True. True. Good. Yeah. And so here's the, here's the reason I asked the question. Um, it has to do with the way we're approaching Genesis 1 through 11 this semester. Remember, our goal is to study these passages, but not just study them like we would maybe study any old thing, but rather to look at Genesis 1 through 11 and to ask, how do we see in these chapters the seeds of what gets planted and grows throughout the rest of Scripture? The whole class, if I remember right, Mark, comes from a comment that a professor made to you, right? And said, every piece of Christian theology, everything we believe, you can actually find in seed form in Genesis 1 through 11. And so what we've been doing is we've been saying, okay, not three chapters, but 11. What if we grabbed 11 chapters and just looked at these to try to discover um, what essentially Christianity is all about, what the Bible teaches? And what if we read these in relationship to everything else and they served as something of a window as we look out into all of the things that God 
um, has revealed to us and all of the ways in which uh, through the centuries we've learned and put together and articulated some of what he has shown us. So uh, that's what we're going to continue to do tonight. And uh, it's another one of our kind of review and uh, and question nights. So here's, it's going to be similar to our last visit. Uh, it'll work like this. I'll say some things for a little bit up here, um, up front, kind of the first half or so of it. And then uh, I'll stop myself from monologuing and Mark, and I, Mark will come up here and then he and I will take questions. A lot of questions have been sent in already, certainly as we talk tonight. If there's something that's been on your mind in the past or if there's something that comes up as we dialogue, feel free to text that question in. You got that number right there, 417-208-9478. You can send a question in there anytime. Uh, So send your questions. As now I will say, uh, my response and reflections are going to be a little bit less interesting than the last time I was here because I'm not just saying this. Mark didn't really say anything I disagreed with. He said some things that I'm going to get to build on is honestly more what we're going to do. And I'm going to take one aspect of what he talked about it and kind of uh, present some other parts of that, fill in the picture a little bit with regard to some of this. But man, so much of what he was talking about with regard to the duty that has been placed on us as human beings and the purpose for which we're created. We're not just created to sit around and sing songs all day. We're created to work. We're created to like enjoy and, man- and, and manage and cultivate this actual physical place that we've been given. We're called to to reflect God's power and love and goodness to one another. It means to be made in his image. So a lot of that duty piece and then uh, and, and, and the purpose for which we're made piece and then on into the next chapters as we talk about the relationship between Adam and Eve and as we, he then talked about the nature of sin and the judgment that comes. Last week I was just listening to the one from last week about how judgment for us isn't a scary thing because all judgment means is that God's going to bring to light um, who we've trusted in and how we've lived our lives. And so for those of us who said, I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm just acknowledging that Jesus died for me and that's the only way I'm in. It's going to be good news for us because we're going to actually be able to see in front of God. He's going to bring to light all of the things that we've done to make an impact for him. It's going to be a happy day. Of course, if we have rejected him, if we have pushed him away, then that will be a day when he accepts our rejection, when he honors our decision to push him out of our lives. And that won't necessarily be a fun date for those who've made that decision. But anyway, a lot of what he said I've loved. And so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak on a couple of comments as we talk through this. But um, it'll, like I said, be slightly different than the last time. What I want to talk about specifically is sin. So it'll be, everybody, it's just going to be fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's just going to be a real happy night. We're going to talk a lot more about sin. I figure a couple weeks talking about sin isn't enough. So let's talk about a little bit more sin, you know? And uh, since it's kind of a weird thing to pull out of everything that's been discussed and highlight a little more, let me talk a little bit about why I want to talk about sin. It, it is easy to think, man, let's talk about something other than sin. Like, what are some reasons why we might want to avoid talking about sin? <laughs> yeah. It makes us uncomfortable because if we talk about sin, then maybe I have to talk about my sin. You know, like part of what the Bible teaches about sin is that it characterizes all of us. So yeah, not comfortable. Good. Any other reasons why we might want to not talk about sin? Shame. Yeah. So it's those, um, I think of shame as there's two images that come to mind for me when it comes to shame. One is a dark cloud overhead and two is that rush of red to your face. When you know you've been caught and you think, you know what, this runs deep, something's wrong with me, and you just want to crawl into a hole and hide. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And I think a lot of us come into church with deep shame issues that we've not let yet, not yet let God touch. And so talking about sin can be very scary, very scary. Now, it can be valuable because we surface those issues and then actually allow him to demonstrate mercy and grace. But yeah, good, good. Any, any other reasons? Anything else? Yes. Yeah, so it just gives us an accurate depiction of our situation. Yes, and that's like not a fun thing to talk about. Um, it's not necessarily like, how many of y'all don't really like being around people who are negative all the time? You know what I mean? 
Sin is by definition, at least starts out negative. I remember I was at the car uh, auto shop not too long ago, and um, I, this one lady asked for a newspaper, said she wanted to know what's going on in the world, and the other lady in the car auto shop said, I, don't, I just like to ignore the crazy. Positivity is best, is what she said. So maybe that's how you feel. Positivity is best. I don't want to think about all this stuff. You know, I just want to kind of ignore it all. Anyway, we're not going to ignore it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to go after it. And here's why. Um, few things are more dangerous than not talking enough about sin. Dangerous. I use that word intentionally. Few things are more dangerous than not talking enough about sin. Why? Because if you misdiagnose the, pro- mis- misdiagnose the problem, you're going to seek an unwise solution. Think about this medically. To talk about sin is just like going into the doctor and saying, here's some of my symptoms. Can you please help me figure out what's going wrong? We all recognize that there are symptoms in our life of something that isn't as it should be. And to talk about sin is actually to try to diagnose that problem. And to not diagnose, again, in a medical context, to not diagnose a problem accurately is dangerous because you might actually try to medicate it in a way that isn't beneficial to the actual problem, or at the very least, you're going to fail to look for what could actually cure you. And when we look around our world and when we look inside our hearts, it's kind of obvious that something's wrong. And there are all sorts of diagnoses out there that we can accept. Some people say that sins, the primary problem is that sin is a crime, and so we should punish people and just throw everybody in jail who does bad things. Okay, and I'm not denying that there's some value to that, but I mean, it doesn't seem to be actually solving the problem. Other people say, well, the issue is like a maladjustment or, or, or some sort of something going on in our, in our minds, and so the solution is just a therapy, like counseling. I lived north of LA for eight years. Most everybody I knew were going to therapy, you know, and I mean, it didn't necessarily fix them all. Other people will say, no, the problem is, uh, is, is ignorance, and so the answer is education, or the problem is politics, and therefore the answer is, we got to get our guy elected. How's that working out for anybody right now? You know what I mean? Or the problem is fill in the blank, and therefore the solution is fill in the blank. And if we misdiagnose the problem as something other than what the Bible talks about, then at the end of the day, we're going to pursue a solution that doesn't actually take care of what it is that's going wrong in our hearts, in our worlds, in our lives. So what I'm about to say builds on what Mark has been teaching about all sorts of things. It builds on what Mark has been teaching, and I'm not going to go back and hit all of this, but it builds on what he's been teaching about the nature of humanity, the purpose that we've been put here for, to reflect, reflect God's image. So when we talk about sin, it's not just God asked us to sit in a room and not do certain things and do other things, and then we randomly did the wrong things. No, it's that God put us here for a particular purpose, and sin has to do with not living up to that purpose. So I'm assuming everything we've talked about, about the purpose of humanity, to, to image God forth by cultivating creation's fruitfulness. I'm going to assume everything he said about free will. It's been a pretty consistent theme that I've appreciated in the last few weeks as we've looked at these stories, clearly what we're looking at, and we can break down free will as deeply as you want. We can get all philosophical, and I'll use the whiteboard, and whatever you want. If you want to go there, we can go there. But what Mark has told us, I think, is what rises off the text, which is that clearly these people seem to have the option of obeying God or the option of disobeying God. Like these two paths are before them, and part of the reason why they go down one path or the other is simply that they choose it. A lot of complicated factors then and now, but ultimately we believe that people either choose to do what God has revealed to them is right, or they choose not to. Also, I'm assuming a lot of what he just said about the nature and effects and sin, but like I said, I'm going to build that out a little bit. So what I want to do, I hope, is fairly simple. I want to talk about how sin destroys us. And really try to back up and taking uh, my primary texts for this are Genesis 3 through 11, also Romans 1, and uh, those, are, those are the main ones. 
I mean, really, what I'm about to share is a result of studying Genesis 3 through 11, studying Romans 1, and putting those together in a way that sort of tries to create some sort of order to understanding how this works. Now, is this a perfect order? No, there are other ways of saying it fine, as evidenced by the last few weeks. But this is, when I put those things together, what we see. If you want to write a couple other passages down, uh, Psalm 115 is another one uh, where there's just a lot of important teaching in that passage. It just, it just uh, emphasizes what we see in the others. But uh, those are some texts that have led me here. So I'm going to talk about this seven-step process that I see in Scripture for how sin destroys us. And then I want to briefly show how Jesus and his life and specifically his death and resurrection solve every single one of those problems, like almost one-to-one. Problem, solution, problem, solution. So let's look at the process of sin in our lives. Let's back up again and walk through what we see in the stories of Genesis, starting with the eating of the fruit and then taking on us up through the corruption that we witnessed and see if we can't get an understanding of some of the things that happen in our own lives as well. How sin destroys us. Number one, fear or mistrust. Fear or mistrust. Sin begins when we fail to believe that God can be trusted. The Bible describes sin in a lot of different ways, uses a lot of different words. In the Old Testament, in the language of Hebrew, and in the New Testament, in the language of Greek, there are a lot of different words to describe sin. And some of them mean going outside of a boundary. Others mean stepping off of the path. Uh, Still others may mean breaking a command or not listening to a voice or not submitting to authority. There's a lot of different ways of breaking this down, but most fundamentally, sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark. The Hebrew word, um, if you care about such things, is chata. The, the Greek word is hamartia. They have some differences, but the overlap is that both of them refer to missing the mark. So picture, uh, picture any number of attempts to hit a target. Picture an archery, right? Picture like an archery target, and you pull back the bow, and you release it, and the arrow misses the mark. Missing the mark. So that's the deepest, I think, way that the Bible describes sin is a missing the mark. So it is uh, ultimately a failure to live out God's vision for us. He laid out a mark and he said, I want, you to, I want you to walk straight on this line. I want you to reach that target. And we failed to walk straight on the line and reach the target. So most fundamentally, sin is us actually falling away from or missing the mark that God has set for us. And I think what this means for us, and this probably goes against what many of you assume, at least it goes against what I typically assume. I typically assume that the most fundamental sin is pride. Would any of you say that? Yeah, generally speaking. And there's, that's not untrue. But I think if you dig a little bit deeper, there's actually something at the root of pride. And I think that the most fundamental sin Uh, in Scripture, is not pride, but rather it's unbelief or distrust or mistrust. They're all synonyms. All of them work. Mistrust, distrust, not trusting God. I think that the most fundamental sin we make is to not trust God, and it actually becomes before our pride. I think this is what you see in Genesis 3, and he talked about it well. So, so, you know, they've been put, Adam and Eve been put in this garden and they've been given all of the trees of the fruit to eat, including the tree of life, right? And then there's this one tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're told, don't eat of that or you'll surely die. And they think to themselves, man, I wonder, I wonder if God's holding out on us. That is where sin began. It, It began the moment they said, I'm not sure if I can trust him. I don't know if I really think that God is doing me good. I have this suspicion that maybe obedience means missing out. That's where sin begins. It begins by entertaining the suspicion, entertaining the thought that maybe obedience means missing out. I'm not sure if I could trust him anymore. 
I don't believe that God's best for me is the best for me. I think maybe he's holding out on me. I think maybe he's trying to keep me in my place so he can have all his candy or whatever it may be. I don't trust him. And that's where I think sin begins. So it begins with mistrust, fear. That's stage one. Stage two is rebellion. This is where the act of pride comes in. This is where, because we're not sure if we can trust him anymore, because Eve is thinking to herself, maybe God, mm, food looks good. Maybe God just doesn't want me to have good things. What does she do? She rebels. She decides that she's not going to submit to his authority. So if it starts with mistrust, we, we fail to trust in him, it immediately, or say maybe not immediately, eventually results in the outward act of rebellion, the outward act of disobedience, the outward act of saying, I'm not going to do what God wants. This is sin coming out into the open. This is what you see in Genesis 3. We want to be like God, knowing good and evil. We see that this thing is desirable for gaining wisdom. It's pleasing to the eye. It looks like it tastes good. So I just want to take a bite of it. And I know that God told me not to, but I'm not sure if I can trust him anyway. So I'm just going to rebel, and I'm not going to submit to the authority that he's placed in my life. I'm going to try to do things my way. And this is where I want to a little bit, um, not so much push back on, but explain in a different way um, something in the garden. So you have this tree, and it doesn't say the tree of lust. It doesn't say the tree of, um, of improper power. It doesn't say the tree of laziness. It says, what is the tree that they were not supposed to eat of? The knowledge of good and evil. You ever wondered why? I have. I think that's kind of weird. That like the thing that we were not supposed to jump to was the knowledge of good and evil. Now there's a couple of ways of explaining this that I think might be, I think are true. I think it's one or both of these. One of the ways is what Mark talked about, which is up to that point, humans only knew good. And by eating this, this fruit, they were actually coming to know evil as well. That's a possibility. I think actually the more likely explanation is something I'm sure lots of people have talked about. I learned it from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've heard his name. He was, a, he, was a, he was a German Christian, very faithful to the time of Hitler's rise. It's just a fascinating story. He had a lot of things he said are really brilliant. And he's the one that first helped me think about this, I think, well. And what he suggests is the reason why God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was because God wanted them to trust him to tell them what was right and what was wrong. And that tree represented humans' desire to determine right and wrong apart from God's authority. Does that make sense? So if you think about our world, I mean, is that not what we see in our world among those who reject God? Is, uh, well, we don't really want to listen to what God says is right and wrong. We want to set up our own standards. And is that not what happens inside the church when we fall into legalism? We don't really want to listen to what God says is right and wrong. We'd like stricter standards, thanks very much. So whether you like looser standards or stricter standards... I think what this tree represents for us here is that, that we, and this initial act of sin, was that we, we don't trust God. We're no longer leaning into and relying on him, so instead we're going to rebel against him by deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong. We want to be the ones to set it up. Isn't it interesting that ethics is the original temptation to determine right from wrong apart from just listening to his voice? So I think that's something that's going on here in the rebellion. So first we start with mistrust, and then secondly we move to actual openly rebelling against him. And then third you have idolatry. And this is where once we've knocked God off the throne, we've got to replace him with something else. And so we assign sacredness to something within creation, and then we serve that thing. And truth is, we'll do this with anything. And we tend to do it most of all with good things. 
I mean, some people make an idol out of trash, but most people like make an idol out of things that are valuable. Let me give you some categories of things we do this with. We could turn, uh, we could turn groups into an idol. So I idolize my team, or I idolize my, my country, or I idolize my family, or I idolize my particular church. So we have a group of people, and instead of submitting primarily to God, we actually make this group sort of on equal with him. And we're really subtle about it most of the time. Like we wouldn't say, well, yeah, like my family's more important to me than God. But we would say God and family. And really what we sometimes mean by that is family and God. And I'm using one that actually hits me a little bit between the eyes. Because if there's one thing I'm tempted to value over God in my life, it's my family. And if there's a situation where I'm tempted to sin in order to protect something that's important to me, it would be doing whatever I got to do to like protect these little tiny people who are my responsibility. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not even saying it's not my job to. I'm just saying those are the moments when I think I'm not actually sure that certain things would be right, but I'd probably want to do them anyway, you know, because this is my, this is my people. That's, that's, that's actually idolatry. And remember, we usually don't idolize junky stuff. I almost said it, but I held it in. We don't idolize junky stuff. We idolize like stuff that's good. So groups, we could do this with groups. We could do this also with symbols. So in the ancient world, they would, they would, um, they would often worship the sun like for obvious reasons. Once the sun comes up, you can see and you have warmth. And as long as the sun's shining, your crops are producing fruit. You know what I mean? So you look up at the sky and you see that stuff happens up in the sky that either decides whether we're going to have life down here or not. So you start worshiping the sun. In our worlds, we could do this, um, you could do this with the dollar bill. I mean, do people not worship the dollar bill? Do people not give themselves to a dollar bill? Do people not give them to a flag? Again, our world is currently organized and, and kind of defined by, by nation states, which is fine. That's, I think, part of God's design and purpose for these things. And loving your own country is fine. I think that's part of God's purpose and design for these things. But we can take this symbol of us and kind of elevate it so high that it becomes the most sacred thing in our world. Or we could do this with, with a company logo. There are certain companies that you would die for. It's weird. <laughs> like there are certain companies that you sacrifice your family for. That's really strange. That's a very odd thing to do. But that's what we do. We idolize stuff. We also can do this with ideas like liberty or happiness or capitalism or socialism or whatever it may be. You can take an idea and it becomes the driving force of your life. My life is all about fill in the blank. If you ever find yourself saying my life is all about fill in the blank and anything is in the blank other than God, then we probably have a problem. So we usually take God's good gifts and we turn them into something that actually competes with God for our affection and our trust and our service and our devotion and our love. So this is that third phase of the process. We start in mistrust, we move through rebellion, and then we wind up in idolatry. We are equal opportunity idolaters. John Calvin used to say the human heart is an idol factor. I think that's true. I think that's true. So mistrust, rebellion, idolatry, but then something happens to us as we devote ourselves to something other than God. And it has to do with the way we were created. We were actually created to worship God. And we we're created so that when we worship God, we actually become more like him. And as we give him proper glory in our lives, we actually are transformed into becoming more like him. So whenever we give ourselves to something else, we're formed in the wrong direction. And so our next phase of this process is called corruption. Because we've given ourselves to something other than the one in whose image we're made, we start to become corrupted. We become like what we worship. And so we spiral into something less than truly human. It's a basic biblical concept 
that we become like whatever we make ultimate in our lives. I've given you like six verses to talk about this. Throughout the scriptures, there's this consistent teaching that whatever you make ultimate in your lives, you're going to start looking like it. Some of y'all are starting to look like a dollar bill. Some of y'all are starting to look like comfort. Some of y'all are starting to look like safety. Some of y'all are starting to look like power. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are starting to look like, uh, you know, your company or, again, your family, whatever it may be. And so we take God's good gifts and we twist them around into something evil. And this is where you see it straight up on the pages of Genesis 3 through 11. Think about what we've talked about so far. So as soon as sin entered the equation, what got corrupted first? Marriage. How? Because they felt shame and they responded with blame. Remember this? They felt shame and then they responded with blame. And then marriage, which was designed to produce life and work the world, those things that were a part of marriage, childbearing and working together, those things got cursed. Those things got corrupted. Then you move on into chapter four and you see that beyond marriage alone, family's been corrupted. Because what happens in chapter four? Cain and Abel is envy, sibling rivalry and murder right there on the pages of Genesis 4. And I've actually heard, I don't know what you think about this, I'll just throw it out there. I've actually heard that not only is this a story about two brothers, not only is this a story about tension between siblings, it also may represent a larger tension between agricultural societies and hunter-gatherer societies, those that subsist on on the farm and those that subsist by taking and fighting the animals and finding them. That these are in the ancient world, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense in the ancient world that you would have tension between these two different types of communities. And it may actually be that in the story of Cain and Abel, we see rivalry between siblings and we also see rivalry between different types of societies. Even if that's not in that part, as you move through Genesis 4, you see that very thing, the breakdown of society. So you have things like exile and vengeance, the cycle of vengeance grows. You have things like um, the production of cities and culture. So it's in Genesis chapter 4 that we have the making of instruments and the making of tools and such things. That was always supposed to be the plan, except it wasn't supposed to be corrupted by sin. So now in our corruption, the very fact that we give ourselves to something other than God because we've decided he can't be trusted and we don't want to follow him, now this corruption that takes place in us gets reproduced in all of the, all of the things that we're a part of. This is why sin is certainly a personal thing, but it's also a communal thing. There is what the Bible sometimes, sometimes people describe the Bible's teaching as systemic sin or, or structural sin. So the, some of you are in businesses and you can see not only are the individuals sinful, but there's actually practices that we have as a group that are not what God wants. Some of y'all are in edu- worlds of education and you may be able to identify aspects of your educational system that are broken, but you, you don't know how to fix them. It's not like any one person doing something wrong. It's just the system as, as, a, of a, as a whole, like it doesn't accomplish its original. It doesn't seem to accomplish the purposes God would want for it. Why? Because sin is working its way through our entire system and is corrupting everything. I probably said enough on that. I think then our next move is from corruption to bondage. It's not just that things are getting messed up. It's that we find ourselves stuck. We find ourselves controlled by the system, unable to break free from the huge suicide machine we've constructed. Let me give you two examples of this. Uh, Family system theory and corporate greed. What order do we want to do this? Let's do the corporate greed one first. So you think about the fact that uh, you can look at certain certain corporations and say, um, you know, clearly like this is a corrupt institution. This is a corrupt group, right? But whose fault is it? It may be run by good people through and through. But you got the people who may actually be doing the work and they're just doing what they're told by their superiors. And the superiors are just, you know, sort of middle managers being told by the board. And the board is just trying to report to the stockholders. 
So this sort of this, this, where is the sin residing? Well, it's kind of hard to say. And everybody may want to change things, but everybody may feel trapped. What am I supposed to do? Like, I, I got to feed my family. This is the only job available to me. And if I'm going to keep my job and feed my family, I have to do what that person says to do, even if I don't really like it all that much. So we find ourselves stuck, do we not? Think also about family systems theory. So in, the, in, the, in like family counseling type, type stuff, one of the things they talk about is uh, part of what makes families complex is not just you've got a bunch of individuals who are deciding to treat one another in various ways, but you create some sort of a system. The easiest way to explain this is like you have a black sheep child, you know, if you've got like five kids in the family and there's this one kid who's just always bad, usually if that kid shapes up, what happens? Another kid takes his place. Why? Because everybody's gotten used to the family operating with a certain level of dysfunction. And it just doesn't feel right if it's not working that way. Or if y'all are in marriages and you realize like, you ever wake up and you think, how did we get to this point where we haven't had a real conversation in weeks? How do we get to this point where like intimacy is a memory? How do we get to this point where we actually don't like each other, you know? And I think we all experience this to some degree, some more than others. I can remember doing some marriage counseling in, in the church I used to work at and sitting across the table from some people who, man, it wasn't that long ago that they were madly in love with each other. And literally they're looking at me saying, I don't know if I ever loved him. I don't know if I ever loved her. I knew you. Like, you did too. You're so blinded right now that you actually can't even remember how you used to regard this person. How'd you get here? How'd you get here? It's because the system itself becomes corrupted so much so that we find ourselves in bondage to it. Bondage. Consistently, Scripture teaches that sin is something that enslaves us. And I heard Mark say it on the podcast. Everybody knows what it's like to be enslaved to sin. Even if it's not, you know, you got a jacked up family, you're part of a jacked up corporation. Maybe there's an addiction. Or maybe there's just a sin that you wish you wouldn't commit, but you keep committing it. Whether it's with your body or in your mind or whatever it may be. So sin puts us in bondage. And this takes us towards the end. I can go through the last two pretty quickly. Number six, I think, is depravity, which is this biblical word to describe we can't even think straight anymore. Our minds start working backwards to the point where we reverse God's design and even call evil good. It's Genesis, uh, not Genesis. This is uh, Romans chapter 1. This is how the, how the chapter ends. These people are so warped in their minds, their minds have literally stopped working so much so that they look at evil and they call it good. The easy examples are things like drug use, gang activity. In some of these contexts, if you're in the middle of that, you're looking at this going, actually, the best thing for me to do is fill in the blank. And from the outside looking in, maybe you'd go, are you serious? You actually think that's a good idea? But in the moment, you do. And it's not just, though, in those sort of contexts of those people, if they are those people. It's not, it's not just there. Those are just examples. I mean, I don't want you to think I'm being political, so let me pick on one from both sides, right? I wish neither of these issues were politicized. Unfortunately, they are, so don't hear me saying something I'm not. But you think about abortion? Here's a situation where... Like, this is a reversal of, of the intent. For, and I'm not, if you are a woman who has, who has uh, in, the, in the distant or recent past, uh, decided on abortion, I have no doubt that was, a, that was one of the most brutal decisions you ever had to make. And I don't want to minimize the pain that you may be going through as you process through that. I want you to know there are people here that want to process that with you. So I'm not just up here throwing rocks at somebody. But if you think about the actual action of the, the woman's womb is given by God in order to, in order to uh, cultivate life so that new people can come into this world. And that which is given in order to cultivate life actually becomes so defined by selfish desires that, it's, that like, instead of life happening in there, by choice, death happens in there. And again, I'm not trying to pick a political issue, so let me pick the other side. Take poverty. And there's a lot of things that go into poverty, so I'm not trying to oversimplify these things. But take poverty, for instance, and recognize that at least some of the time, 
what happens is we blame the victim at least some of the time. There are people who find themselves not having equal opportunity. I do wish at some level we could just acknowledge like equal opportunity is the goal, but it's not always the reality. And so we're looking at these people who they have not had the opportunities that you and I may have had, or maybe they, maybe they did at one point and they, they sort of one time made a decision or two, three times made a decision and it got them stuck. At any rate, they find themselves by factors outside of their control, unable to break free. And we look at them and we go, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. And I'm saying in both of these ways, these are just examples, and I hope I haven't picked poor examples to take you away from the main point. But the main idea is that in various ways we call evil good. Let me pick one that's a little easier. We, anybody in the room ever, ever sort of decide, and you may not have think you decided this, but, if, but like by default you decided lying was a good idea? Maybe I should have just stuck with that one. It would have been a little bit easier. Huh? That's what I'm getting at. The fact that we, we call evil good, then I think it ends in seven despair. We resign ourselves to despair. Believing the lie that that the dungeon is actually paradise. Or the lie that though indeed it is a dungeon, there's nothing we can do about it. I do think there are two tracks kids can take. One is just kind of a pressing further into depravity. Living in just a a hellhole of a world. And just, ah, this is the best we can do, right? I'm just going to shoot up again because it's the best I can do. Calling dungeon paradise. I think the the more typical response, at least among, you know, most of us, is not to call the dungeon paradise, but to admit that it's not all that great, but just kind of decide there's nothing we can do about it. So I might as well settle for a decent existence with a house I own, 2.5 kids, a couple cars that run, maybe a few church donations to ease my conscience a bit. And we just kind of despair and say, there's nothing I can do. At the end of the day, I don't even know why I'd try. I'm just going to do the best I can. I'm going to get mine, take care of my own, forget about the rest of the world. That's despair. It may not feel like despair, but that's despair. That's a hopeless existence. That's the end of the process of sin. Starts when we look at God and say, I don't trust you. I don't don't think you have my best interest in mind. I just don't believe that obeying you is the best thing. I think I'm missing out. So because we don't believe that obedience is the best idea, we rebel against him and we say, I'm going to do this my way. I don't really like your way. I want to do this my way. I'd rather not submit to your authority. I'd rather do this my way. And so we do things our way. And since we remove God off of the throne and we're made to worship something, we put something else back up on the throne. Maybe it's this picture of ourselves. I don't know. So we put something back up on the throne and then we devote ourselves to that thing. We probably don't get down on one knee or two knees and lay before it anymore. That's kind of old school idolatry. We're a little bit more subtle with these things. We just give all of our time and all of our money and all of our energy and all of our attention to these things. So we give ourselves to being so much so that we start to become corrupted in our own individual hearts and souls and minds and that it stretches out into our societies, communities, families, etc. So much so that we find ourselves stuck. We're in bondage. Well, how we get here? Well, I don't know, but we can't get out. And so what do we do? We either dig deeper into the depravity or we just sort of try to make the best we can and say, screw it, throw up our hands. I don't know what to do. That's sin. Like That's, I think, what you see in Genesis 1 through 11. It's a bleak picture. We haven't even looked at all of it. I didn't go into detail about the parallels between chapter 6 on because of, at the end of the day, oh yeah, I wanted to mention one thing too. In the process of corruption, because this is going to come, again, come up again, so I might as well tell you now. In the process of corruption, you see the corrupting even of spirituality. That, I think, is the point of that weird story about sons of God, daughters of man. We can talk more about the details of what this actually means and what happened and how and all this, but I want you to understand the point of the story is that in the process of human beings becoming corrupted, we even took something as pure as contact with the divine world, the divine realm, and we corrupted that. That's the point of the story. We even jacked that up. So like the God-us dimension 
It got messed up too. It got corrupted too. So that's how sin operates. Now briefly, I won't take me as long to do this. Let me just walk through and show you how Jesus puts us back together again. That's how sin breaks us. Here's how Jesus puts us back together again. I think we've accurately diagnosed the problem. So let's, let's look a little bit at the solution. And I want you, if you're taking notes, to draw a picture of a cross beside this section. Because everything I'm about to say talks about Jesus' entire life, death, and resurrection. But the focus is on the fact that he died And what happened when he died? So let's look at this. Let's look at him dying and being raised again. Number one, Jesus removes our basis for fear by revealing a God who sacrificially loves us. If you don't think God can be trusted, I mean, if you're not convinced by the fact that he sent his own second self to die a sin he didn't, a death he didn't deserve because that's how much he loved you, I don't know what else to tell you. Like if you, I'll tell you, being a dad has taught me more about the love of God than anything else. And it's not because of what you might think. It's not because of how much I love my kids, although that's what happened first. That did deepen my understanding of God's love, but then I expected that. I didn't expect what took me further. It's because I can't imagine demonstrating love to a person who intentionally harms one of my own. I don't get that part. I don't. And so if the equation is God up here and, and, your, and the kid down here, and then, and then the person responsible for the death of the child over here on the side, we are over here on the side. We're the ones responsible for the death of the child, and he still, he still, he still loves us through that very act of sending the son to die. So in dying, Jesus revealed to us a God who can be trusted. Number two, he atones for our rebellion by dying as a sacrifice for our sins. The fact is, your rebellion deserves to be judged because God's a God of order. He's a God of order. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who, I don't know if I want to share the details of the story. I don't think I will. I don't think it's appropriate. But, you know, sometimes whenever you see, have you ever been really mad at somebody else for hurting somebody you love? Think about how God feels. Because every single one of us has hurt someone who he cares about every bit as much as we care about anyone. And so that alone should tell you that God is right in judging sin. Not to mention the fact that he's a perfectly holy God who can't tolerate anything other than that which accords with his nature. He's, he's, he's holy. He demands justice because he's a good God, because he's a loving God. And you and I rebelled against him, but he sent his son to take the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Number three, Jesus undercuts our idolatry by revealing a God of infinite love, power, and wisdom. I don't know what you're tempted to worship, but it cannot bring people back from the dead. That's kind of all I think I need to say about this. He exposes the foolishness of our idolatry by showing us that nothing is more powerful than him because only he can overcome death. Number four, he reverses our corruption by transforming us into his image through the spirit. Part of what Jesus does for us is not just to make us reconciled sort of once and that's it. He reconciles us back to God and then he transforms us from the inside out. So this corruption process, this spiral downward starts to work in reverse and we start to be changed from the inside out. Not automatically, not all at once, but we find our motivations changed. And then we find our behavior changing. And then we find our habits changing. And then we find that we are actually positive change agents in the families and companies and communities and schools and businesses and political realms and whatever else we might engage in because we've actually been transformed from the inside out. Number five, Jesus liberates us from bondage by, bondage by freeing us from the power of sin. If you don't believe that, go back on the podcast and listen to the Romans class from that last semester. Because I think I probably said it like 1,400 times. I mean, you are free from sin. You don't have to sin. How do I know this? Because God killed, he killed that old master that held you bondage. 
So if you sin now, it's because you're listening to a voice that has no authority over your life. You don't have to sin. He freed you from that. Number six, Jesus exposes our depravity by demonstrating the full effects of sin. (laughs) You know what evil did? It killed God. And not in its ugly forms either. In the things we're tempted to call good. I don't know who first said this, but I've heard it a bunch of different times. In the story of Jesus, think about this. You have the greatest religion the world had known up to that point, combined with the strongest government, the strongest government that history had produced. And then God entered the equation and they conspired to kill him. That exposes, I think, our depravity by demonstrating the full effects of sin. And lastly, Jesus overcomes our despair by giving us hope for a future kingdom. He tells us, guess what? A better world is on the way and you can be a first fruit of that world. A better movie is coming and you can be part of the preview. A better story is being told and you can be one of the characters. Matter of fact, it's alive in you right now. And it doesn't always happen perfectly and it doesn't always happen as fast as we'd like. But the fact is, new life flowing through our veins and it is, a, it is a small down payment guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. So sin jacks us up and Jesus puts us back together. That's essentially what I wanted to say. And I do think you get that from the pages of Genesis 3 through 11. Why don't you welcome Mark up here. We'll take some questions and then see where the conversation takes us. Everybody needs a mental break. So turn to somebody, give them a high five. Okay, we got some questions that have come in that have spanned uh, spanned the globe. Actually, uh, nice. Uh, there it is. Uh, she still do that? No, he doesn't. Does he? Uh-uh. Yeah. I think they're actually missing stories about my family. I think that's what they're missing tonight. They haven't. <laughs> they, you haven't had one of those. <laughs> I hope you'll survive. All right. Yep. Why don't you uh, continue on with the concept of the sons of God and daughters of men? Mm-hmm. You talked about some of the things. Uh, that have, are dangling out there, some yeah. of the theories and so forth. It's a complicated text. It is, Talked yeah. about it last week. So, I mean, there's a couple of different options for it. One option is that sons of God just means like, uh, like men from the good tribes and daughters of men represents women from the bad tribes and there's an intermingling of the two. I don't find that to fit the description of the text. I'd love it if that was what it meant because it'd be a lot less weirder, you know what I mean? Um, but uh, like I said, the main point I think to draw from this at this point is whatever actually went down and like however actually it happened and looked, the, 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 the primary thing I think with Genesis 1 through 11 is what's the point of the story? It's kind of like you talked about with the Cain and Abel. What's the point of the story? And I do think that the point of the story is that in the process of messing everything up, we also messed up our relationship to the spiritual realm. So God created angels. I think that's the meaning of sons of God. God created angels in order to serve God by serving us as we serve God. And it seems, according to Scripture, that both angels and we have free will. All of us have rejected God. Some of them have. And so you have this corrupting influence of sin that actually results in the total disordering of this relationship between us and the angelic realm. That, I think, is the point. So a couple of things for what this actually means. It could very well mean, like, literally... Angels came down in human form and somehow procreated with women, with human women and made really big babies. Like that's possible for what's going on. The other explanation I've heard that I find fascinating, and like I said, I have to be careful with this one because my tendency is to try to find the non-weird explanation and go with that one. Um, so I, like, I, I, I want to be careful about that tendency. If it's the weird one, it's the weird one and we'll all have to sort of deal with it. The other thing I've heard though 
is that um, in, in certain parts of the ancient world, and even actually still in some parts of our world, you have what's called like cult prostitution or temple prostitution. And so you'd have someone who, who goes to the temple and then has sex with a person as a way of sort of symbolizing having sex with a deity. You understand? And so uh, it could be that what's actually being described here is the practice of temple prostitution. And they believe that by having sexual intercourse in these certain um, pagan religious contexts, they were engaging in intercourse with divine beings or with angels. And so because that's what they attempted to be doing, because that's how they explained what they were doing to themselves, that Moses, who writes down Genesis, one of the traditions that have been handed down, that God reveals this text that basically says, well, that's what you think you're doing? Well, that's jacked up. So like I said, those are the two explanations. It could actually be that daughter, that human women had sex with angel, you know, males, or it could be, and I kind of think, at least today, the one I lean to um, relatively lightly is that what we have here is probably a particular type of description of cult prostitution. So one other thing that I don't think I've mentioned this here, I know Mark and I have talked about it a little bit, maybe I said it a few weeks ago, but I'm going to go ahead and say it again just, just in case. Um, a comment was made to me in one of my seminary classes in grad school that was helpful for me um, to think about the fact that Genesis 1 through 11 can be describing real events in abnormal ways. And here's what my professor said. He said, think about the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, so in the first time this story is told, I, I always get the chapter wrong. I should have looked at the chapter. I think it's 2 Samuel 11. Let's just, let's just go with chapter 11. Is that what it is? 2 Samuel 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. I don't know if you know the story. David is the king and he's supposed to be off the war, but he's not off the war. He's up on top of his roof and he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba who's bathing in a nearby home and he, he calls her over and he, he, he has her and he, they, they sleep together and then she gets pregnant and so he brings her husband home so that maybe they'll think he's the one who impregnated her, but the husband Uriah is a noble man, and so he cannot be with his wife while his soldiers are off fighting, and so he doesn't. So David sends him back to war with this note that says, put him on the front line, and he dies. That's the story, 2 Samuel 11, literal description of actual events. In the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan comes to David and says, I got a story to tell you. There was a man who had all the lambs he could want, plenty, so many, and his neighbor had one little ewe lamb. It's just his prized possession. But this man who had all the lambs he wanted, it wasn't enough for him to have all that he had. He also had to have this other man's single lamb, and so he took the lamb. And in order to cover his back, he actually caused the man to be put to death. And David is ticked. He's like, oh, you find him, you bring him to my court, because we are going to deal with him. Justice will be served. He must die. And then Nathan says, you're the man. (laughs) And the, the point my teacher was making was both of these chapters talk about the same actual historical events but they do so in different ways. One of them is a literal description of literal events. The other one is a parabolic description of literal events. In both cases, something actually happened. So I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I'm saying it may be what we have in these early chapters in Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. I think things change when you get to chapter 12 because it's just there's not as much stuff that we, out of the ordinary. So that may be a clue for us that there's a genre thing going on. And part of how Genesis 1 through 11 is, is, is uh, teaching us is by telling about actual events in, in um, kind of dressed up ways. Again, not to be deceitful, but because that's how we sometimes talk. It's like a political cartoon. People have huge heads. You know what I'm saying? 
Not because they actually are that, well, usually, like are that physically large, but because a point is being made with these things. So that's something to think about as you wrestle through how to make sense of a text like the beginning of Genesis 6, with the strange bit about sons of God and daughters of man. All right, let's back the tape up and go back a couple of chapters. The serpent mm. was a snake. Yeah. The serpent spoke through a snake. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a good... I mean, I don't know. It, 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 this falls to me in that realm of... Um, in that realm of, you know, did Adam have a belly button kind of thing? Uh, where do the other, where do the other people come? Where do the people come from that Cain was afraid to go to? And either like, here's what I know for sure. Um, God has, God has given us the details that we need in order to understand the point of the story. I think that's true. Yeah. So, um, I'm fine with the curious questions. I have them myself, but ultimately this is why, um, this is why I think it's important to, what do I want to say here? I think at the end of the day, um, I don't know how to make the distinction between did, a, did, did Satan use a serpent or was Satan actually the serpent or did Satan take the form of a serpent? I don't know how to make sense of that. I think that either it's a literal description and somehow in some strange way, a serpent started talking. I think it probably make most, makes most sense as sort of like this strange possession of the beast, right? Possession of the animal by virtue of the enemy. Uh, so that would be, if we're talking literal description of literal events, that's probably the best way to understand it. I do lean towards uh, a parabolic description of literal events type of reading of Genesis 1 through 11. So in this case... I, the, the question of, you know, was it a serpent or speak through a serpent almost like doesn't make sense of what I think the text is trying to do. I think the point is that a voice came from within the world God created that called humanity away from faithfulness to God. And if you uh, think about like the origin of Satan, about which we know very little, very little uh, about like where Satan came from. But it seems to me on the basis of how we see him described in Genesis 1 and then in the book of Job and then on throughout the story as he becomes full on Satan is it seems like he was a, an angel of sorts whose job was sort of like a prosecuting attorney. He was a tester of faith. And so his job was to test people by putting them in situations where they're either going to fail or they're going to succeed. And it seems like he decided one day he didn't want them to succeed anymore. And so he rebelled against God, and instead of testing them with the goal of them being successful, he actually became a tempter, one who tries to get people to fail. And so that, I think, is some of what we do see about Satan as we read between the lines. But like I said, when it comes to the origin of Satan type stuff, we're on thin ice, so we need to be careful. What would you say? Would you disagree with anything I just said about the serpent stuff? I'm asking the questions. You just give the answers. (laughs) Um, I've always referred to thematically in the Bible the the serpent image and how it plays out for the entirety of scripture. So I tend to believe Satan used a serpent because a serpent would be something that for all of us, there's an intrinsic fear. You know, that's why when you see a guy walking around with a nine foot, 35 pound snake wrapped around his neck, your first thought isn't cool. Your first thought is idiot, right? (laughs) And if you're that guy that's carrying that snake, you had to tame yourself before you tamed the snake. Mm-hmm. there's an intrinsic fear. When you look at the serpents that were biting them in the wilderness yeah. and Moses made a bronze serpent and held it up, it wasn't the image of the serpent. It was a reminder that God could even overcome that. When Paul was bit by a serpent 
in the book of Acts, and he shook it off into the fire, and he lived. It was a sign that God had overcome one of our worst fears from the animal world. So I guess I'm going to hedge my bets and say that there was a possession of a serpent because a serpent would become something that mankind was never comfortable with afterwards. Yeah. Uh, did it speak or not? Well, did the burning bush talk? Pardon? The, the donkey spoke? Did it speak or did he think it spoke? <laughs> it's not it's a bad answer. The results It's not were the a bad same. answer. And it's that's, not a bad answer at that's all. That's the point we're getting to. Our critics will say to us, you're hedging your bets and you're dodging the direct question. No, no, the question doesn't have to be answered the way you want it to, to be answered to be an answer. And so when you look at it, I, it's a great question because it's being asked for generations. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you have to have a talking snake to give validity to Genesis, yeah. I would question your interpretation. Whether it was real or it wasn't, what difference does it make? And so you, you, have to, you get to wrestle with that. Because yeah. deep down inside, I know we, some of you are horrified. They don't know. Okay, does it change the reality of God's promise, God's faithfulness, the deliverance of Jesus, and my personal sin? Not at all. Nothing's at risk for me. Uh, and so, <laughs> thanks, Mike. Uh, why did God create such a vast universe if there's only a life on earth? I saw that question. Yeah, I like that question. You know, my answer is, we'll see. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I just think God is awesome. Like, God is so much bigger than we could ever imagine. And um, we, we really will spend the rest of eternity getting to figure out just how crazy vast he is. Like, I'm totally going beyond what we know for sure, so don't hear me thinking, like, this is probably how it is. I'm just wondering. You know, like, I know there's a lot of people who've lived who tragically have rejected God. There's also, like, a lot of people who have accepted God. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe the new heavens and new earth will involve overpopulation, or maybe, God, maybe God's going to send some of us to other solar systems. I got no idea. I think at the end of the day, um, God just is that. Like, it's hard to think about it's hard to think about God. It's hard to think about the fact that before, before God created the world, like there literally was just God. That's it, always. Where'd God come from? Now that's the wrong question. You know what I'm saying? Like it just God, like God actually just is. Think about that. I mean, that's just, that's, that's nuts. So why did he create this vast universe? To make us say, wow, I think. To bring us to our knees. So that we'll understand how crazy it is that he loves us. So this is a God who makes solar systems for fun. This is my real answer. The other one I was just playing. This is my real answer. So that we would understand how crazy it is that a God who makes solar systems for fun actually calls you by name. That's nuts, man. That's weird. Uh, in the best way possible. And so I think that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky should claim the work of his hands. Um, <laughs> to, to, to tie the two together. So um, communication doesn't require words. I mean, your wife can tell you to do the dishes without saying a word. You know what I mean? Um, and so maybe in, the, maybe in the garden, maybe in the garden, the servant just rolled up and took a bite of the apple. And Eve was like, ooh. Maybe that's how this communication happened. I don't know. I do know, though, that the Bible says very clearly, I'm thinking about Psalm 19 in this regard, the heavens declare the glory of God, skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the world. Their words to the ends of the earth. That's, I mean, so to, to talk to us, to tell us who he is. I think, I, I wish I knew, find me if you ask that question. I just want to say, I like your question because it helps me worship. 
Okay, let's have a glimpse of here, realize what we just thought. First of all, he comes out here in this skinny suit that I couldn't get my arm into. <laughs> and he's very technical, and he's very careful, and he's very posed. What you just saw was Michael unveiled right there. <laughs> this is the guy I got to go to Israel with, where mm. the thought that he's just got happy thinking about <laughs> space was refreshing. Uh, I had a college roommate, and his name was John, and John believed that when Jesus left, he went to other planets and he ministered to the people that occupied them. And he and I used to, over pizza and David Letterman, used to argue, and now I sit and I go, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's nothing in the Word of God that say that's not possible. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like God, something God might do. We've said this way too many times. If you make a comment today and our heightened aggression and division in our country... Everything's political. Mm-hmm. So even if I say this isn't a political statement, you're going to make That's it one. True. But when I hear that we're going to spend billions of dollars to fly someone to Mars and back, I want to go, why? To, to say we did? Really? People are starving. We have bigger issues to deal with than going to Mars, but someone's going to deem we go to Mars, and there are people, there could be life up there. Yeah, there could, but I'm surrounded by it every day. Mm-hmm. I'd like to focus on what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. And so what we happen is we get this whole, could there be life? It could. It could. And when you talk about, I want to bounce back to a previous question. One of the reasons that Hercules is in the mythology of our world may go back to that sons of God, daughters of men. Hmm. And so the question is, well, where are they now? The flood. Hmm. So there's questions about where did this mythology come from? Where did they believe that the the gods interacted, and where did they believe all of this? And you know, in the shadows, in the in the fog, we're looking through this, going. Before we judge mythology, it may have its origins back in some of the things that Bible mentioned. Mm-hmm. The world accuses mythology of us of the Bible stealing from mythology, and I tend to right. flip the script. I think mythology came from some of the realities that Genesis is trying to give us a a glimpse of, so we understand. Um, okay. Uh, you, you kind of danced around these a little bit unintentionally, not knowing they were on the sheet maybe. Okay. There's a lengthy question here, and it's very well written. So whoever's written this has either set us up to tell us we're wrong or <laughs> wants us to deal with it. So I'm going to process this question the best I can. To populate the earth to the extent that it is now, do you believe God not only created the original Adam and Eve in Mesopotamia, as Genesis records, but additional people on the other continents that were not destroyed by the flood. These people would not have had a knowledge of God, unlike the patriarchs in Israel that God worked his redemption through. You get, you get the gist of the question? I think so, yeah. And it says, Hence the population and diversity of people in areas of the world that could not have been as populated and diversifies as it is since the time of the flood, which is an assumption that's Yeah, I think I'd... Uh, great question. Very thoughtful question. I think I'd probably push back a little bit on the assumption that, you know, that we couldn't have gotten this populated since the flood if indeed it was a literal worldwide event or whatever. Um, Based so, on a 6,000-year... Yeah. I still don't think I'd buy the numbers. But uh, maybe you know something about population pattern, more, more about population patterns than I do. Um, so maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, I, again, I just... I, I don't know that, um, so you guys know I'm not like a scientist, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher, I'm, an, I'm a reader of scripture, so I think I can speak with, with some degree of clarity in terms of what the Bible teaches, and I think at the end of the day, like we talked about with, um, with when we first started approaching Genesis 1 2 in particular, is the emphasis in these chapters is, remember, remember what we said, it's not how, but who and why. 
So it's not so much interested in telling us like how God did it, but rather the fact that he did it, uh, made us and why he made us. So if God has other, um, I think you could even argue, you could make a case, um, as I'm thinking out loud with you on this, you could make a case that the presence of other people, remember when Cain is killed, he says, don't send me far away because they might kill me. Who? <laughs> I mean, they don't even have another son until later to replace the one he kills, you know? So who are we talking about? You could argue that you see here in Genesis something of, you know, evidence of others. Now, I would push back on another piece of the question. They wouldn't have the necessarily like the same direct knowledge of God that's, that, you know, is present in the biblical story. But being made in God's image means that you're made to worship God, whether you know his name or not. And this is why, if you ever wondered, why are there so many world religions? Isn't that weird? Like, why... Is there just seem like there's a religion for every ancient people group or something like that? Well, the answer is because you can't get rid of the image of God. You can't get rid of that, that dust is still in you. You can't get rid of that, um, that, that cry of eternity, that whisper of something more. And so you're built to worship. You're going to worship. And if you haven't heard about God's name yet, you're going to find something else to worship. So again, in the ancient world, you typically worship the sun having to do with the crops or sex or uh, the king. And honestly, none of those are all that hard to understand when you think about life in an ancient context. Um, so, yeah, I think that it could be that there are other people and they um, were made by God to worship God. They were made by God in his image so that they might one day come to glorify Jesus. And this is why we've been sent all over the world. This is why in Acts chapter 2, uh, you, not to get too far ahead of us, but you have the reversal of Babel. In Babel, you have people spread in all different directions and the language is confused. And then in Acts chapter 2, you got everybody coming together and then the language is being understood. And from that point, the gospel then goes in the book of Acts until it hits Rome. And why does it stop at Rome? Because all roads lead to Rome and all roads lead from Rome. Once the gospel hits Rome, it has essentially reached the point from which it could spread out to the rest of the world. And so we go get the descendants of these peoples who now have an opportunity to hear the good news. That's my best guess. I'm not guess. That's my best attempt to answer the question. And my my pushback to a uh, door you left open that I want to lock Mm -hmm. is just because Cain and Abel were mentioned does not mean that the others weren't there and we don't know at what phase in the development there could have been because they're going to ask one of the questions is asked three different times is who's Cain's wife yeah yeah and again, like for me, the, the, all of these questions, so that you don't think we're just dodging them, all of these good questions that you're asking are why, um, why I think that the genre of this book is not a literal description of literal events. It is a, call it what you want, I don't know the best words because all the words are loaded, but like a symbolic or a parabolic description of literal events. So don't hear me saying these aren't literal events. I just don't think we're getting a literal description. You ever wonder why, like, okay, so for instance, are violets blue? Like, doesn't violet, and I'm colorblind, so I get that I get confused about these things, but I'm pretty sure violets would be violet, Right? So why do we say roses are red, violets are blue? Because it's a poem. We're not trying to be precise, you know? So we use language in different ways. And we're allowed to because of the type of... St- if I said there are 200 people in this room, I have no idea literally how many of you are in this room. I'm not even very good at estimating. I'd make a bad lead pastor. <laughs> Actually, this is why I work with Mark because he doesn't care either. He's not out there going, mm, oh yeah, that looks like there's 17,000 people in here. <laughs> um, that's typical church counting, right? Um, I'm not trying to be precise when I'm not trying to be precise. And I think it, that, that, that God is revealing his ways and will and nature to us through a text that isn't trying to tell us all the things that is not interested in telling us. And so this is, like, again, all of these questions, 
are great questions, and they are why I have arrived at the belief that I have with regard to what Genesis 1 through 11 actually is and is not. There's a question here that actually when I cut the grass, I think about on occasion. I thought that's how the question began. I'm like, yes, oh, exactly. <laughs> I like this guy or girl. Maybe you cut the grass and you're a lady. That's fine. So go ahead. The question that I've had for a long time, and it's, it's mentioned here, is will we be tempted in heaven? If our understanding of that passage that talked about him falling, Satan falling from sky mm-hmm. like lightning, if there was a rebellion in the heavenly place, if that was in, God, in God's perfect form, yeah. it hearkens to revelation, uh, is there this concept that there could even be rebellion yeah. in the new heaven and the new earth if free will still exists and free will is a part right. of what gives us the ability to love and worship? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's a possibility that you could reject God in the new creation in heaven. Uh, why? Because I think it has to do with a couple of different factors. You have freely chosen him. You have said, once and for all, God, I want you. And so his reward for that will be to show you who he is. And when you see him for who he is, you will never turn away. And this is First John 2, 2. We will be like him when we see him, for we shall see him as he is. So there will be a transformation of your character that takes place the moment you actually feast your healed eyes on him. And from that moment, there won't even be a thought of turning. And it's not that God has now denied your free will. It's that he's rewarded the decision that you've made to worship him. And honestly, like, think about how character actually works anyway. You get to a certain point when, um, I'll just use like an extreme example. I I, I 100% believe that it would be literally impossible for me to commit adultery today. There's no situation in which you could place me that I would commit adultery today. Zero, zilch, period, not going to happen no matter what. Why? Because of the, 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 the string of decisions that I've made up to this point that have made me who I am today. Now, who I am is not determined right now for all eternity. So if I'm like going to get all, if I'm going to get dumb and sloppy with my life, I could make a decision today that could lead to a decision tomorrow that could lead to a decision the following day and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And a year from now, I could become a person who's capable of committing adultery because our decisions actually shape our character. And so think about this. This will be on the other side of a lifetime of decisions that have pushed us at the very least towards believing in Jesus, if we, even if we don't follow him as well as we'd like. And then he will, again, reward us by showing us him who he is in his like, glory and beauty. And they're just, we just won't desire it. It would be like saying, are you sure that you don't want to eat dog food after you've had uh, the Cinnayum from Liz's? Like, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. You're never going to want to eat dog food again. You know what I mean? Um, because it just... It just wouldn't even make any sense. So I don't think there's any way we'll sin on the other side of these things. I don't. I like when Happy Michael comes on Wednesdays. <laughs> Sometimes you get Slappy Michael, which is a little scarier. We haven't gotten there yet today, and I think we're safe. Yeah, on so. behalf of every husband who's ever told their wife, roses are red, violets are blue, we meant it very specifically. <laughs> there, was, there was no generalization. We weren't trying to get close. So yeah, apologize no to Beth when you get home. <laughs> All right. Well, we're uh, out of time. There are some more questions that have come in. We're going to do this one more time. Uh, in this series, and we'll clean up some of those dangling threads. But some of the questions are coming in. They're really good. I don't want to gloss through them. Uh, there's you know, questions about uh, uh, polygamy. Hmm. How yeah. come some of the biggies uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11 yeah. uh, have polygamy in their lives? And uh, how does God deal with multiple wives when 
uh, we teach something completely different found in the New Testament. And we'll address issues like that so it's still present. We'd, I know he always says I hate this because I, fa- I think if you actually listen to me for 30 minutes without walking out, that's the best gift you can ever give me. <laughs> but I know Michael lives for praise. Whatever, so would, come would you on. applaud this no. guy for coming in and giving us some time tonight? That's funny. Well played. Let me, uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll free you up to have a little bit of fellowship time before the kids are dismissed. God, thank you for your truth. And as we struggle up here with some big, big questions that have been asked for a long, long time, Father, we pray that we have honored you uh, in our estimations and in the connections of the things we've been privileged to have been taught. I pray that uh, instead of our answers being uh, divisive, God, I pray that they would uh, allow each of us to look to you because you don't answer every question we ask, but you have revealed enough about who you are that we believe in spite of our questions, in spite of those, those gaps. Uh, and God, we live in a world that says, no, I want evidence before I believe in anything. And, and you've asked us to walk by faith. So you challenge us even in your silence. And we're grateful for that. I'm grateful for Michael's friendship, for his study, for the way that the word has penetrated his life. And with such quick recall, he's able to bring us to places in scripture. I'm grateful for the time he's invested in that and the way your spirit's worked in his life. And I pray you bless him at the college that he can have that same connection with the students that he invests in. I'm also appreciative of every family that's represented here tonight. And there's a million things you could have done on a cold, rainy night, wrapped up in a blanket and read a book, but they've chosen to come and participate and open their minds and hearts. God, please reward that, bless that, and bring a great fruit from it. We just pray for a a great night's rest. Jesus, if you come back tonight, that would be awesome. If you don't, then there's work for us to do tomorrow. So help us be rested and refreshed that we can serve you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.